The Four Horsemen. What you have here is the Four Horsemen, united, live and exciting color. Um, not those Four Horsemen. These Four Horsemen discuss theology from different viewpoints, different perspectives, as we show people how to have discussions without turning into a keyboard warrior. Are you stupid? Now, here's the Four Horsemen. Well, here we are, brother. It's good to see you. God bless you. I want to say hey to our number one fan, Michael Pittman. It's good to see you, brother. Uh, <laughs> but welcome to the Four Horsemen today. We are going to be the Five Horsemen, and uh, so yeah, Ben doesn't count. He's gonna he's gonna be tag team. Ben in. always counts, man. Yeah, uh, Ben times two. Ben squared. Ben squared on the right hand side here. Uh, but joined today by Ray, uh, myself, Derek. Ben squared over on this side. And so today, uh, the topic that we're going to discuss is on accountability and the, the, what made me think about this is a lot of people, uh, have listened to the podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill that Christianity today has put out. It's been out now for several months. Um, they, they finished it up last week with the final episode, but the, it is the story of, again, the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And I wrote a brief thing about it last week on Facebook because uh, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill had a big impact on my ministry early on. I listened to him pretty much every week, um, went to several conferences that he was a part of. I was a true fanboy, as Ray likes to give me a, a hard time about. Uh, but when you look at the story of both the rise and the fall of Mars Hill, the, the biggest thing that I believe that was lacking and the whole scenario was accountability, uh, accountability for Mark himself and and those in leadership around Mars Hill. And so uh, what we want to discuss today is accountability, not only on a personal level, uh, but as a church as a whole, a structure, church structure in which th- that way we can have accountability. And so what I want to begin with today is um, is to look at Matthew 18. And that is what everybody goes to when it comes to quote unquote church discipline. Uh, but it, it, it really is the verse about accountability. And so what I want to do is I want to, we want to kind of break down each point and then, uh, then we'll go on to from a church wide perspective. But, uh, I'm reading from, uh, NLT, sorry, I'm a liberal, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, but verse 15, it says this, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. All right. So read that again. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Now, in the world of don't judge me, only God can judge me, uh, this flies in the face of that right? Because it's going to another person and telling them a wrong that they have committed against you. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Maybe uh, you don't have to share specifics, but if you've gone down this path with somebody, um, but why is this first piece so vital uh, to uh, an individual's walk with the Lord? I'd say it's always easier to talk about somebody Mm. and you know, misery loves company. If you've got your feelings hurt or been rubbed the wrong way, we always look for some kind of validation of our position and to gain 
some kind of following behind us. Um, so that's our kind of our default sinful position. It's easier to um, have the other person be in the wrong than to actually have to conf- be confronted and, and look inward and see where we're at fault. So in most church situations, that's that's my experience is that um, even if you're not directly involved in it, people are always coming to you to get you to side with them, whether you're doing marriage counseling or whether you're doing along with a staff conflict or a interpersonal uh, conflict between church members and deacons. Um, so I think it's necessary to answer your question because if you don't confront it, you will never be able to get to a point of forgiveness and reconciliation, never be able to move on. And it's hard to detangle all of that and get to the real root of the, the issue because um, we cloud it with our own sin and our own desire to be right and have others on our side. Well, you hit on something real quick. Let's chase this rabbit for just a second. Uh, is gossip. Uh, gossip in the church. It doesn't It doesn't happen in my church. Uh, but it probably happens <laughs> in y'all's churches. Uh, but let's talk about gossip for just a second. Um, instead of confronting the issue with the person, uh, as Derek said, it's easier to talk about somebody than to them. So let's talk about some of the dangers of gossip and not doing what Matthew 18 says. What what things could uh, happen if these things aren't confronted? Well, it's always, you know, like with sin, sin never just stays the same size. It always grows and it always consumes. You know, the Old Testament type of sin is leprosy. We know how leprosy does. It consumes the the body, the sores start, and then before you know it, people are losing limbs. Mm. So in the same way in, in church life, I think gossip, as opposed to direct uh, confrontation of a problem, is always going to make the problem bigger. And uh, you think, well, we can ignore it, and eventually it'll go away, you know, that passive type uh, handling of stuff, but it never will. It never, ever does. Yeah. What is gossip? What what? How do we define it? Because I, I've had some some situations where I'm like, well, that's gossip. No, that's not gossiping. So how would you guys define gossip? I would say it's passing on information about another person that may not be true or verified by that person. Um, it's it's very close to lying about somebody. It's about it's, someone, but it's, not. It's not to the degree of slander yet because slander is just like a personal ad hominem attack against somebody but it's passing on information that's either hearsay it's not confirmed or he said she said that kind of stuff and the person you're talking about is not present to defend themselves it usually has a malicious intent in the sense that you want to characterize somebody as wrong and i'm right Mm -hmm. so the the issue behind it is 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 the sinful heart i would also add that it could be truth um, and, and the way it's presented um, is, is what makes it gossip. And so you've got an issue with somebody. It's a real issue. It's a real problem. There's a real concern there. It, it can really cause damage. But instead of me going to Adam because he's the one who offended me, I take that truth and I go to somebody else because what I'm really trying to do is rally people. I'm, right. I'm trying to build an army. That's right. Um, because I just want to tear him down. 
Because if I didn't want to tear him down, I would have gone to him in the first place. Mm, that's right. Uh, so to me, it doesn't necessarily have to be untruth or unverified. It can be true, um, but we're just not going to the source of the problem with it. We know one thing people say is, well, if they were here, I would say it to their face. <laughs> Anytime they lead off with that comment, you know gossip is about to come out of their mouth. Well, it's called All we got to say now. is, well, no, go say it to their face. Don't say it to me. You right. know, take it somewhere else. Well, I think it's great what you said about um, leprosy. You know, it's almost like poor, like there's a fire, right? There's a there's a little bit of a fire there, and all you're doing with gossip is, is spreading it. You're you're throwing gas on that fire and trying to spread it, and 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 really for malicious reasons. You may not think it is, but as we've been discussing, it's like you're trying to rally people to be on your side, and that's that's problematic. I, w- I would say it's also possible to gossip without being malicious, though. Uh, I think so. I think sometimes people gossip and maybe in the moment don't even realize that they're gossiping, um, which can make it harder. But um, the way I would define it is uh, information that requires consent without consent. So mm-hmm. you're, it's you're sharing something that, like like you said, Ray, it might be true, but it would be something that you would need to get a person's consent, like. Uh, if your doctor sends your medical information to another doctor because you signed a paper saying, I need you to share this with this person so I can get some help, they have your consent. It's not gossip for them to do that. If your doctor is talking to one of your church members because they hang out with your church members about your medical information, that's gossip. And they're sharing information in both cases. The difference is in one case, they have your consent to do that. In another case, they don't. And so a lot of times when you hear people gossiping, even if they don't mean it in a bad way, like like the classic is, you know, we need to be praying for so-and-so, you know, about this situation. Sometimes that's malicious and they're trying to tear that person down. Sometimes they might legitimately be concerned about that person. But at the same time, the question is, does this person know that you know this information and and do you have their permission to be sharing that information? Mm. And so if it's something that can be kind of publicly known, like if you're if you end up on the news and people are talking about you based on what's on the news, well, it's not really gossip because it's public knowledge. But, you know, if you know, I saw so and so's car pulled over by the police the other day and they must have been speeding. That's speculation or you don't have consent to share information like that. And then it becomes gossip. Right. So obviously gossip is a bad thing. And as I've been talking about with our church, you know, we've received grace from Christ. So therefore we need to show grace to people. And and, and individually we want to be, it's the love your neighbor as yourself type thing. Do I want somebody talking behind my back? The answer is no, not at all. I don't care what it's about. You know, um, I want that person to be able to come to me. And so that's why I think in the scriptures, This is Jesus teaching it. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. So that means I'm upset. Uh, Even if it's it's a misunderstanding, maybe I could have misunderstood something someone said or did or anything like that. Uh, If I go to them, uh, it says to go directly to them in private and point out the problem. You know, here's what, Let's talk a second. This is what you said about me or you said to me, or this is the way you handled it. And man, this is the way I feel about it. And to be able to have a conversation. And I would say that the most of the time that I've done this, it has been a misunderstanding. It has been a, that's not what I meant. And oh, okay. So just a clarification ends the, the tension 
Whereas if I don't go to the person, I can let this build into something that it truly wasn't. And so what, what kind of situations are, when you guys have done this, what has happened or can you give any illustrations of that? Well, I want to say something before we move forward. Since our focus is accountability, I, I just want to get it across that this says, if another believer. Mm. And so we need to be very careful as followers of Jesus that we're not holding people who are not followers of Jesus mm. accountable uh, the same way that we should be. Uh, you know, we're, we're not to hold those outside of the church accountable for their actions. Um, they're going to be judged by God anyway. Uh, I mean, Yes, we shouldn't gossip about them. We shouldn't go down those roads. You know, all the all those things apply. But when we're talking about accountability, we're not holding somebody outside of the church accountable. We're holding one another accountable. And so, if we're followers of Jesus, then then we should be willing to do that, and we should be willing to allow it to be done to ourselves. And if we're not, um, then we really need to seek our hearts and 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 ask uh, Christ to you know, help us to to repent of that. Right. Amen. What are some situations maybe you guys have done this and or whatever? Well, there was there was one instance where we had a, a gentleman who was doing something that he had already been confronted about to stop doing, and um, you know, just for sake of confidentiality, I won't go into too much detail about what it was that he was doing. But anyways, he was confronted one on one, and then he was confronted uh, two on one. So you know, we went got to that next step and he continued to do that. And after that second step, he left the church. And, you know, we made sure to share with him that our intention is not for him to leave. Our intention is for him to repent and be reconciled to the the body of believers and most importantly to Christ. And he chose instead to leave the church and it's never been back. So unfortunately, you know, even though our intention is reconciliation, I think because of the pride of the human heart, uh, a lot of times people just leave. Right. And but that has to be a choice they make, you know. As long as we're doing it in love and with the purpose of reconciliation, um, you know, that's all we can do. So, so that was kind of one of my experiences with that, and it was an unfortunate ending right. to that scenario. I'm you know. I'm in the same boat with you, except the instance that I'm thinking about were people in the church who were upset with me over things that they didn't like about my preaching style or or how I was leading the church or. Really, these were people who were who were not happy with the changes that we were making in the leadership and in the direction of the church, and so because they were unhappy and they really didn't have anything a, a character issue to bring up, they started making up things that they were unhappy with me about, and so these these comments circulated among certain factions within the church, and you know when these people were confronted about it, just like is being said they ended up leaving too, um, which was actually in the life of the church, a great thing. <laughs> Blessed subtraction. There is such a thing because when you have people who are basically sowing discord, one of the things that God says he hates, um, dividing the church, just stirring up trouble. Uh, I mean, you hate to see anybody leave. The purpose is always redemptive, but if that's their heart and that's their motive, then they do need to leave. And when they do leave, you're going to notice a boost in the unity of the church. And so in my experience, yeah, it was negative in the sense that we lost some folks, but it was positive in the long run in that, you know, the body of Christ was cleansed in a way of, Mm -hmm. of some leprosy, if you will, if I could borrow that, that uh, analogy. Well, I think 
one of the things too, um, in dealing with some gossip <laughs> is as it said, if your brother sins against you, okay. Me not liking a song, like preferential things, uh, I think can really sow discord. Uh, and so gossiping about preferential things is just as much a sin as, as biblical things. But if I'm going to approach somebody with Matthew 18, uh, I believe it, I need to have some biblical, <laughs> here, here's where you have mm-hmm. sinned against me, not Hey, uh, worship guy, I wish you would play this song or, uh, you know, pastor, I want you to preach this way or wear the suit and tie or who knows what it is. Make sure there's a biblical grounding because it says if your brother sins against you, you're never going to win a preferential battle. Never. I don't care who it is. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not biblical and it's not truly a sin, you know, I don't think it falls under this. Mm -hmm. Um, But gossip you know, if if you're gossiping about the worship leader or the pastor or anybody like that, that is a sin, you know. And so I think you've got to make sure that in way, uh, is my issue with this person, is it biblical or is it just a preferential thing? And um, I think that's a problem that some people get into. That That was a lot of the issues that I had early on at Westwood was about preferential. You know, we want this style of music or we want you to wear this this type of clothing or uh i want you to talk to this type of person and and all of those things were preferential so luckily they came to me even though i knew they were talking behind my back when they came to me with this stuff i'd slide the bible across and said okay show me in scripture where it says i need to do this or we need to do this show me in scripture of course they didn't they couldn't um so I want uh, that's something I wanted to add in here is to make sure you have biblical grounds for the confrontation because the preferential there will be no <laughs> I mean sure you might can come to a middle ground but uh, you're going to have a harder time without it being biblical. So I think in the the context that we live in we have to be pretty concrete sometimes especially with these issues. Um so our church pra- practices this regularly. Um, so it's not unusual for us to bring members in and take members out and things like that a few times a year for various reasons. I mean, obviously, sometimes it's somebody moved and, you know, went to another church or whatever. Sometimes it is the same issue. Um, fortunately, most of the time, this first step works. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's I could name several instances of people in our church who are are strong members that are really um, encouragers in the church now that are doing good things. And it just took a little bit of correction of, uh, you know, they wanted to come. Sometimes they'll come to the pastor. Well, so-and-so's doing this. Okay, well, did you talk to them about it? Well, well, Scripture says you need to go talk to them about it. And then all of a sudden the problem starts to kind of clear itself mm-hmm. up. But there but there are many times where, and to me that's part of shepherding, where it, it's, there are many times that things can be solved with just a little bit of correction. Because... The assumption too is that you is that the members of your church are believers. Like we like you have to be in agreement on that. If you bring lost people into membership, then like Ray said, I mean you can't expect them to act in a godly way. Wretches are going to wretch. I mean that's what they do. <laughs> but assuming that the people in your church are saved, which we should, um, then you're assuming that the Holy Spirit in them is going to guide them into truth, and that you're just an instrument that the Lord's using to help shepherd them. And so sometimes it just takes a little nudge of like, "Hey, you're kind of going, you're going in a direction that's not good. 
And and I think the other thing too that you see here is is uh, uh, giving people the benefit of a doubt mm-hmm. and assuming maybe this person isn't being malicious. Maybe this person isn't trying to tear down the church. Maybe they just let something slip out that wasn't supposed to, or maybe they were just upset. Maybe I'm misunderstanding this. Yeah. yeah, and 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 so having that conversation for that person. There's been times where I've confronted church members about things, and they're like, "Oh man, I, you know, I didn't mean anything by that. I'm so sorry. I'll go apologize to that person. I, you know, uh, that was a total misunderstanding. I've seen I've seen that happen, and so that's the kind of shepherding stuff that church members don't see that we do as pastors during the week is those kind of conversations that never become a public issue because they're just resolved because we all stray from time to time, mm-hmm. or even uh, with me when the when the other elders come to me and say you're getting a little sideways on this. Like you, you need to be careful. Uh, other people may not necessarily see that correction, but I receive that too, because I'm also a sinner. But I think to be more concrete, like we have a statement of faith and we have a church covenant that members are required to be in. And both of those are based on scripture. They're not the same authority as scripture, obviously, but there should be, you should be able to show in scripture. This is right. we say. We believe this, and this is the text that it's based on. And so that's that's the context that we use for this, because like what you're saying, if your brother sins, it's not our definition of sin, and God decides what sin is. So like so like you guys were pointing out, you know, the violation needs to be a clear. The Bible says that God's law says you can't do this, right. and you did this, and the Bible says that that's a sin, and and that's not okay. And that eliminates the preference of you know. And and by the way, this goes both ways because in a lot of churches. Uh, they can accuse the pastor, or they can fire the pastor for doing something that's not sin, which is unbiblical. So if you as a pastor get up there and preach against the confession of faith that you have, or you violate the church covenant, then they should be able to come to you and say, Pastor, you made this promise, this agreement to us based on God's word, and you broke it, and so you've disqualified yourself as a pastor by all means. But do they have biblical grounds of, well, I didn't like your preaching style, or I didn't like this leadership decision you made, or whatever? The congregation doesn't have the authority to do that, according to the scripture. Well, it's, and again, it's it's the biblical, you know, even the qualifications for a pastor. You know, what of those things disqualify me? Right. Not just I don't like the way you wear what you're dressing. But you said something, and I wanted to hit on this too, because this is the key element, I believe, with this. Is what if I come to you, Ben, and say, Ben, man, you you've sinned against me. Like, how well do we receive that? Because, like, in, in the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you know, Driscoll was like, forget you. The bus is getting ready to run over you. You know, it's almost like I'm the spiritual father. I'm the spiritual thing. And we're going to talk about church leadership in a second. But I'm talking about you as a believer. If someone comes to you and saying, I have this against you, how? what's the best way for us to handle that situation? First thing I'm going to say is be specific. Mm-hmm. Tell me exactly what you're dealing with, why you're angry, how did I hurt you, what words did I use, um, what did you feel? Because in the realm of gossip, a lot of it can be generalities, mm-hmm. right? But if someone's really, truly got beef with you, they're going to be able to get down and dirty and, and get specific about it. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I'm looking that I'm looking to is, hey, get down to the fine grains and tell me exactly what's going on here. Well, key for me is James is be slow to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't know about you guys, but if somebody comes at me, I get defensive real quick. Like nobody nobody likes to be confronted. Right. Let's just be real. Nobody. I don't care what it's about. But 
a godly response isn't to lash out and, you know, come back with some untruths or, uh, like scripture says, be slow to speak, you know, don't hear what is said, receive what is said. And it might even be wise to take a day or two before you even respond outside of, let me pray. Let me think on this a minute. Um, unless it's just something outrageous, but I, I know my tendency, if somebody comes to me, I get defensive too quick, whether that's my wife, whether that's somebody at the church, you know, I get combative pretty quick. And that's something that I'm asking God to really work on me. And I don't have a temper or anything like that, but that's just my MO is real quick defense. And so, um, that's one thing I would say is just be slow to speak, you know, hear it, receive it, regardless of what it is. Uh, and there could be some truth in it. Some of it mm-hmm. not, might not be mm-hmm. true. Some of it could be a misunderstanding, but it's their perception of you that you've got to somehow navigate. And so that's the one thing I would say advice is if somebody confronts you, be slow to speak and just receive yeah. it initially. I think, uh, I think there's also degrees when it, especially when it comes to, to criticism, uh, the way that you receive criticism correlates with how much respect you have for the person the criticism is coming from. Like I said, if, if one of my brother pastors here has correction for me, even if I don't want to hear it because I respect them and I believe that they're godly men, I'm going to take that with a lot more weight than I am a church member that shows up once a month or, but should we? or only wants to. Yeah. Because, because like you said, there may be an element of truth there, right? but at the same time uh, you have to also consider the source. If you if it's coming from somebody that that's all they do is they're just critical. That's their right. reputation is they only ha- the only time they want to talk to the pastor is when they've got a problem. <laughs> well then yeah, I'm gonna be on the defense because I don't have a relationship with you that's not a critical relationship, and your crit- criticism is usually preferential and not biblical. Now if I have somebody that the only time they've ever corrected me has been on the grounds of scripture and they've said I do have an issue and here's my biblical reason for that. Again, I'm going to be a lot more attentive to that person of saying, uh, I respect that this person probably has something valuable to contribute. You listen to everybody, but you don't listen the same way to everybody. Makes sense. And then on the flip side, you need to be that person that other people respect that they want to hear from. So if you're listening to this and you're a church member and you see your pastor doing something that you think is unbiblical, you need to ask yourself, do I have the kind of relationship with my pastor where I've been supportive and I've been encouraging and I've been affirming of his leadership and things so that if I do have an issue, he knows that it's coming from a place of love that I'm speaking to him mm-hmm. and not just criticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it'll be received much better. But I think one of the keys that we need to have, uh, especially as ministers, and I know we've been talking about just plain members and that sort of thing, but a- as ministers in the church, we need to have a spirit of humility. Mm. Um, and so when when folks come to us and say, hey, I've got a problem with you, even though they may not approach us in a, a good way, even though we might not have a good relationship with them, we need to listen, but we need to listen in humility, willing to hear them out, because even though 90% of it may be junk, I mean, it, it may be something that you go, well, that's just preference. And then there's that one little piece there. And so I don't think we need to uh, apologize for something that doesn't need an apology. Um, But if there is a little bit of truth there, we need to be willing to listen to that because, you know, God can use somebody like that Mm -hmm. to call you to correction. 
Um, and, I, and I get it. We're not going to approach each person the same way. That's just natural. We're, we're just not going to do that. And I'm going to have a hard time listening to somebody calling me out when we don't have a relationship. And, and that's, that's a big part of it, too. Like, I feel like I could, I could go to Adam now and say, Adam, hey, I, I think you're on the wrong here. Something's going on. Um, but, you know, I, I just met Ben uh, Heisey uh, just a few moments ago, officially. Uh, you know, I, even though I feel like as a, as a Christian brother, I, I could go to him, I probably wouldn't feel as comfortable doing that because we just don't have the relationship yet. Uh, so I think that's part of it, too. We need to, you know, focus on the relationship that we have with the individual and, and kind of use that to gauge how we approach these situations. Yes. Well, the relational aspect, you think about your wife, you know, what's wrong? Yeah. yeah. When she says that, that means start digging, guys. Yeah. Ask questions. But that tension, you want to avoid it within your home, and you also want to avoid it within your church. So let's let's continue on here because I want to get to the church aspect in just a minute. But it says this: um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. So here's a question that I heard a long time ago, and I always thought it was, it was an interesting question. We just talked about gossip. So how do you take two or three others with you to confront a person without gossiping? I guess it's, it's not gossip at that point <laughs> because you're uh, scriptural. In your in the process that you're going through, if the person had listened to begin with, they would have saved themselves the embarrassment of two other people finding out. But now that they've chosen not to repent, two other people or one other person has to be involved now to establish the issue. Well, you know. Well, I think the key. I think the key is it says charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So two or three other people have seen this, but then again, there's got to be some kind of conversation. You know what Ben is. You know, he's a bad dude. We need to go talk to the So, but I do think the intention, it goes to the intention. The intention's not to avoid it. The intention is to confront it, right? So I think that that's where the two or three people, let, let's just say, for example, we're all in a church together and, you know, I go to Derek and I say, hey, Derek, you know, man, Ray, Ray's been doing this, you know, Ray has been acting this way and just it, some of the things he've said. And Derek said, man, have you, you know, he's having a rough time at home. Like he may have a different perspective and relationship with Ray that could clear up the problem right then and there. Um, but if he's like, yeah, I've seen the same thing. Well, then that's when we go uh, to confront Ray. But I think it has to be, like I said, evidence. There's got to be evidence there. I don't know that you would want, hey, Ben, let's go confront Derek. And Ben's like, well, I've never seen that. Um, would y'all would y'all look at that that way? Like I, I, other people have to see this in action. Yeah, I think you can, but at the same time, if if Ben has sinned against you individually, you went to him privately. So this was something between just you two. Maybe somebody else didn't see it. Right. You know, maybe there are no other witnesses. Maybe this is something that was said in the parking lot after worship on Sunday morning, and and one of you has called out the other one. Uh, in that particular case, you know, if if we take it that way, we, we kind of nullify using Matthew 18. And so we need to be careful there. I, I think that one of the things that we can do 
and, and we need to be careful who we bring into the picture too. I think that's a big part of it. You know, we're, we're not the, the gossip aspect of it is let me go get somebody who's going to side with me. Who's, mm. who's going to automatically be a yes person for me. And we're going to go gang up and beat them up. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing. It, it can't be that it needs to be a, a legitimate follower of Jesus. Who's a solid brother or sister in Christ. It, it needs to be, you know, somebody that's going to go there and, and, and listen and you share with that individual. If it is a private thing, you share with that individual and you say, this is what I went to them about. This is the concern that I had. This is the sin that I believe they, and they may look at you and go, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that sounds like maybe y'all just, you're, you're kind of on different edges of, of the, the conversation here. Um, they may be able to, to clear some things or help clear some things up, or maybe they would look at it and go, absolutely. I mean, I think you do have a legitimate concern here. It's a legitimate sin, and yes, I'd be willing to go with you once again in the spirit of uh, restoration in, in repentance. You know that kind of because we want to reconcile them first one to another, but we also want them reconciled to Christ because that sin has is not just offended your brother; it's offended Christ too. If that's the case, and then when that person goes with you or two people, whatever it happens to be, they go with you to that individual. I think even that person needs to be willing to listen to their side of the story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be. I just heard Adam and, and yeah. Okay. Like a mediator. Yeah. Like almost like a mediator where they're listening to the scenario as well. Um, and, And hopefully it's a discerning person that would be able to hear them out and go, okay, I can see where you're coming from, or I can't see where you're coming from. And then we move forward with the process. Right. Yeah, Ray, because I, I was I was just going to ask you that same question is like from a pastor's perspective, <clears throat> how could a pastor find that person and how can they know who would do well in that? And should they go ahead and set aside someone for the inevitability that that's going to happen, but also someone that when you go to that person and confront them about sinning against you, it doesn't look like you're taking out a personal vendetta against them. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe someone has um, hurt our ego by questioning some of our preaching, so then it comes across when we go to confront that person, oh, the pastor just went and got some heavy hitters, and now they're going to come and come down on me. So how can a pastor kind of protect himself, you know, in that way and not select the wrong person? And should we go ahead and have a few of those in the waiting for that time when that comes? <laughs> Plurality of elders. <laughs> we were waiting on it. We knew it was coming. And we'll, and we'll get there in just a second. I want to yeah. get there in just God a, knew what he was doing. Yeah. I want to get there in just a second. But I think um, the getting the two or three people, when you were just talking about, you know, the way it's handled, the way it's approached, you know, you can speak like Driscoll. You can speak truth with no grace. Right. That's not what you want to do. You don't want to go into this to absolutely blast somebody. And if you if you've got um, high emotions and you're really worked up over the situation, you might need to let it simmer a little bit before going to use Matthew 18, because then you don't want to be sinning while doing Matthew 18, you know, well, I've sinned, you've sinned against, well, now you're sinning against me by cussing me out, you know, so it, it, that, that's not how it works. So I, I think just to, um, to add to that, as far as taking witnesses, I mean, for one, like, like you guys said, obviously we do want qualified people. So I joke about elders, but that's a real thing. Like right. we, we have three, so we're able, the three of us are able to 
approach uh, members or whatever if that's necessary. And I've done that with other elders. I've done that with deacons. I've done that with members, you know, depending on the situation um, as far as having to go and talk with people. But uh, if you look at the progression, and we'll get there, but if you look at the progression. Go ahead. Go on down. The, go on down. You know, the next step is, you know, if they don't do this, take it to the church. And the following step is excommunicate the person. This person's not a believer. Right. Well, how do you come to that conclusion? It's because if, as far as we can tell, if the Spirit of God is indwelling a person, there's going to be conviction of sin. That's one of his responsibilities. And so if we're obeying Jesus here and we're confronting people with biblical sin, again, not preferences, but saying this is what God's word has said, and the response is just hardness of heart to where the whole church says that you're wrong, the whole church says that there's no evidence that you're in Christ because you're continuing on in this sin, and you just want to basically give everybody the finger and God and the Bible and everything else and say, I don't care, you're not a Christian. Right. You're not a believer. And so he's saying treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. They're not a believer. So the first step, again, is assuming the best about the person. This person's in Christ. They have the Holy Spirit. They just they they made a mistake, or they're or they're heading off in the wrong direction, like any of us are going to do from time to time. That's the reason why Jesus teaches this, because it can happen. It's it's happened to me before. I've had people correct me, but the presumption is is that when I hear that, even if I don't like it in the beginning, I go back later, and the Spirit's like, "Are you going to obey or not?" You know, and and that conviction comes, and you might go back to the person later and say, "Hey, listen, I I know I was kind of upset, but you know, you were right. I I need to change on this." That's the response that's supposed to happen. When it goes to that next step, the now you are presuming that there's a possibility a person's not saved. You're not there yet, right? Because you don't want to bring an accusation against that person without witnesses. That's the point. You that way you're not gossiping. You're not saying, "Well, I think it's like no." These people saw this person demonstrate the behavior that an unbeliever would demonstrate. So you're kind of presuming, I, I have a suspicion that this person may not be in Christ because they, they weren't quick to repent. Right. Now, even at that point, it's possible that some of us just get a little hardened sometimes. And it's possible that maybe that accountability of a couple people coming to them, and like like we said, respectable people in the church coming to them and saying, hey, we're, we're, we're concerned about your soul, the way that you're acting. That might be enough to snap them out of it and say, wow, I, I really did go too far with this. I need to get some help or I need some counseling or I need whatever um, to try to get some help. But then if it progresses on to the church, by the time you bring it to the church, what you're saying is, is church, uh, we as the leadership, we as these witnesses, uh, we believe that there, there's good grounds to say that this person's not saved and we aren't going to make the decision. The church brings members in and out because that's what the Bible teaches. And that's why Baptists agree with it. Um we bring members out. You need to evaluate the evidence of these witnesses, of the accusation, of the steps that have been taken, and you as a church need to decide, uh, is this the behavior of a person that's in Christ or not? And if it's not, then we have to presume that this person's in fact not actually a believer. Right. How often have y'all dealt with that, an actual churching? Our, la our last meeting, we actually removed five people. <laughs> Yeah, twenty five of you. No, we 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 brought in five and removed five. <laughs> yeah, only we're had we're one still net zero. We're trying to get. <laughs> we had to remove somebody from leadership because of a um, personal situation. Right, they, the character wasn't there anymore. Right, I think, and it's not fun. It's yeah. no, it's grueling. And if you if you really want to see a pastor earn his stripes, go through Matthew eighteen. This is yeah. why so many pastors don't do it. 
because it's hard right. and it's grueling and it's emotionally exhausting yeah. and nobody wants to go through that. And a lot of pastors, they don't do it because it's easy just to let things go and they don't really care. They just want to keep the peace and get a paycheck. And, but if you care about the health of the body, you're going to do this because if you don't. And it does bring health. Yeah, but it, it does. It, it's like it's like anything else. You know, if you've ever had to have surgery or something like that, it's it's horrible. It's not something you want to go through. Nobody's dying to go under the knife at the hospital. But at the same time, if you've got a real serious condition, I mean, that could be the difference between life or death for you. And it's the same way with the church. I mean, it, when it comes down to it, we're in Western North Carolina. There's a church on every street corner. <laughs> if you wonder why they're not growing and why they're dead, this is, this is the reason. It is the reason, especially in Baptist churches, because they stopped practicing discipline. And they were more concerned with filling up the seats than they were with obeying Scripture. And that's why they are the way that they are. That's also the reason why the average tenure for a pastor is around two years, because about two years in is when he, he, people start coming undone in front of him, and he starts seeing the sin and has to decide, do I obey Scripture or not? And he obeys Scripture, and then he gets a vote of no confidence at his next business meeting. From the from the unregenerate people that have run the church for decades, and we're going to talk on that. Just, That's on every yeah. street corner around here. Before we get there, two things: I've I've gone through discipline yeah. now twice with per, two different people. You say, well, you should have done it way more, maybe. But the two that I've done is we've gotten to the second step of taking two or three with them, and then they left. Yep they they never would. Um, so and that still on the roll. no. No, we do renewals for that very reason. Um, but let me say this. Um, what happens, okay, let's say that uh, a brother sins against you, and let's say, Ben, you, you've done something to me, and I say, hey, Ben, can we talk? No, I don't have time right now. And they continually put it off. How do you handle that? Because I've seen that happen. Let's talk, and they continue to put it off. Well, I can't right now, or this or that. And they keep putting it off. Now, obviously, as a as a pastor, you know that's yeah, one step thing. Two. But yeah. I've seen this happen, and I keep telling, "Well, you need to talk to him. You need to talk to him." So, what happens if the person keeps avoiding the conversation? Yeah. What do you do? And again, as a pastor, that's one thing. We can call him out. We can call him to the carpet. We can uh, take some more positional, I guess, power. But the regular old church person person avoids it what do you do i think you have to go to step two you know if they won't even give you the opportunity okay. to go one-on-one -on -one, yep. go ahead and bring your witnesses and if they still want to put it off i think you have to go to three yeah. you know and go ahead and bring it before the church and let the church make a make a decision right. you know but if they're not going to give you the opportunity to do what the bible asks of church leadership then you really have to progress in those stages in, in my opinion yeah yeah I completely agree. well I, th I think they've denied that they're willing to do anything about it anyway. Mm. I mean, so it, essentially they've already taken you through that first step. And then if they still are, you know, are not willing to sit down and talk about it with the next step, I mean, all along the way, they're the ones who have already made the decision. They're yeah. They're refusing to, to fix anything. And so you need to move through with that uh, process. And if it gets to the church, I mean, yes, it, it's tough because now you're you're speaking to the church on something that you really haven't spoken with that individual about, but at the same time, you make it clear these are the attempts that we've made. And and I would say this, 
we need to be very careful when we go through this process. Um, for one thing, I think you need documentation. You, you need to make sure that when when you're going through these steps, that something is documented somewhere. This is when I attempted to speak to them. This is when we sat down. This was the outcome, whatever. This is when we brought somebody else in. Because uh, along the way, people are going to question you. They're, they're going to think, well, uh, we didn't see this. We didn't see that process. We didn't hear anything about it until you brought it to the church. Well, no, that's the point. I mean, that's, that's, right. what, that's what Scripture tells us to do. We shouldn't bring it to the church because uh, we don't want to be gossip. So we don't, we don't want to be that kind of person. Um, so documentation is going to be necessary. And, and also, I think that as much as we want to deal with these issues as pastors, many times, and myself personally, we step into churches where that's never been done, or at least yeah. it's not been done in, in recent history, 30, 40, 50 years. Nobody has ever been dealt with. Um, I, I can think right now of a pastor that um, stepped into a church, uh, a small church, uh, but he stepped into a church and found out his worship leader um, has been living with his girlfriend for, for years Nobody has said anything about it. Nobody mentioned it to him. He he never found this out prior to it. Well, now here he is, the pastor, looking at the man who's on the stage, which, by the way, probably a third of the congregation is his family, <laughs> and and he has no collateral built up. He won't be there in, long. in the congregation. <laughs> yeah. So neither it, will God. <laughs> yeah. So it is, in a sense, understandable. When pastors walk into those situations, why they may not address it initially, um, because I think that's a culture that's built, and you, you really got to build that culture. You got to start it, maybe even with yourself. You, you you've got to be the one who begins that. Uh, but you're going to take a risk, and you need to understand this. If you want to stand up for for what's right, you want to stand up for for the gospel. You want to stand up for the truth. Uh, you just better be aware that, uh, yes, they could run you out of town because you're the new guy, and bless God, I was there when you got here, and I'll be here when you're gone type of thing. Uh, so I want to speak to that and, and, to, and to what you just said, Ray. Uh, for one, I think that's where having a church covenant is important because, like, like you said, uh, Adam, what do you do when somebody's trying to dodge that conversation or they know it's coming? So for, so, for instance, like in our context, because we do regularly practice church discipline, uh, everybody that comes into our membership knows the expectations. We have a conversation with them about it. There's no surprises. In fact, we just redid our bylaws a few weeks ago and even clarified even further, for instance, with attendance, like how many weeks can you miss before you're having, somebody's having a conversation with you? Because we don't want it to be this vague thing. Like you said, right. We want it to be clear. We're not trying to zap anybody, but you just need to know here's what the expectation is. So that when that conversation comes, you can't say, well, the pastor's out to get me or, somebody's gossiping about me. It's like, well, no, you agree. You agreed. So if you break your church covenant, all the church is doing by removing you from membership is acknowledging what you did. Mm -hmm. Nobody's kicking you out. You decided you wanted to be out when you violated the covenant. We're just affirming your decision to do that. 
And so then the responsibility isn't, well, that mean old church kicked me out over there. It's like, no, you told the church that you were going to do something and you lied to them or you betrayed them. And they simply let you go and do what you wanted to do, which is not be a part of the church. And so if you want to be a member, that's fine. But Or if you want to be an attender, that's fine. But being a member is a different level of responsibility and mm-hmm. commitment. And that's part of the issue. You can't practice church discipline on the back end if you don't fix the front end of membership coming in. That's right. And that's why they say, you know, the, the two things that you can do when you come into a church, like what you're saying, Ray, is you can preach the Bible. You can make sure that that's happening because a lot of times that hasn't happened in church situations like that. And you can control the front door membership, mm-hmm. do interviews, talk to people. Do you understand the doctrine? Do you understand what the expectations are? Mm-hmm. Those are two things you can fix right away. Mm-hmm. The second thing is to what you were saying, Ray, I'm inclined as time goes on to think that uh, a lot of guys are too soft when they go into a situation like that. And the reason why is I think sometimes we have a tendency to trust more in our ability to fix things in the church than God's. And so um, I was told at, at Fruitland and Adam, you, you, well, you guys you guys were both there around the time I was. You've probably heard it, Ben. You might have heard it. But basically, you know, uh, when you come into a new church, you got to keep your tithers happy and, you know, uh, don't rock the boat too Get much. Get through yeah. the honeymoon stage. Yeah, exactly, right? And And I understand where some of that sentiment comes from. But in a situation like like your friends, whoever they are, you know, where they go into that church and there's just obviously blatant sin there, isn't God powerful enough to sustain that church if a third of the church leaves because sin's confronted? Hmm. I mean, I mean oh, that, that that's that's like a doctor looking at you and saying you're eat up with cancer, but we're not going to do any chemo yet because it might kill you. It's like, well, listen, you're going to die. Like you can either do treatment and it and it, it may not go well, but you can do treatment or not. The reality is if if that church is unwilling to repent now, it will be dead in a few years. It already is dead. The lampstand's already been removed. So then my my thought as time goes on, not for the sake of being edgy, but I think pastors are going to have to go into churches. 99% of them are going to go into an unhealthy church. And they, they need to assess the situation and say, you know, if there's preferential things or whatever, those things are not, don't fight with somebody over Bible translation or over the music or whatever. That's what people want to try to do when they come in. Don't fight over that. But if there's sin in the church and you're not willing to deal with sin, don't expect God to bless your ministry. Don't expect them to, to grow the church. Don't expect the believers in there to get mature. None of that stuff will happen if you tolerate sin going in. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Calvin, a, a guy that nobody likes to hear from, said that, uh, a pastor has to have two voices, one for the sheep and one for the wolves. And when you go into an unhealthy church, it didn't just magically get unhealthy. It's because there's wolves in there. And so if you're not willing to go in there, and, and one of the things that Mark Driscoll said is that wolves are supposed to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, he probably should have done that for himself, but yeah. you know, the pr- the principle may be true, even though he didn't yeah. practice it. Well. I preached some, a message recently on uh, on Aiken and, and the sin of, of him taking things and hiding under his tent and all those kinds of things. And and the the point of that, and, and I went back and looked at it a little bit too, because um, I, I got thinking about the timeline. God had removed his hand of blessing from them before he even told Joshua what the sin was. And, and I think that's the case a lot of times. The sin is there, 
God has already removed his hand of blessing upon a lot of churches because that sin is there. You know, you, you, you got these churches out there that are just decimated. There's very few people left. Uh, they're very inward focused, whatever it may be. Uh, God's already removed the hand of blessing. And then you get in there as a, as a new pastor seeking to revitalize, seeking to build them up, whatever it may be. Um, and then you find out that sin. Uh, well, he, he first removed his hand of blessing, but then he called it out and said, you got to remove it. Mm-hmm. And, and how did he say remove it? Now we're not going to, you know, take, take the people in sin and, and, you know, cast them outside the city and kill them. Uh, but, but that was the way that God said to deal with it in that situation and things turned around, things changed. And so if we follow this through this Matthew 18 model, if we follow that through even to the end where we have to remove people from the fellowship, uh, no doubt God's going to take care of us. No doubt God's going to uh, bless us tremendously because we're being faithful to him. And you're right. I, I, I do think that we have to come in and we have to stand firm. Uh, we have to be faithful to those things. Uh, but as I said before, you just got to be aware that when you do that, you know, you've got to be prepared for whatever the outcome is, you know, and, and just just be prepared to um, trust in the Lord. You know, he's going to take care of you. He's taken care of you before. <laughs> he's going to take care of you now. I'll say this because that was exactly what I walked into at Westwood. <clears throat> and I learned more than anything there um, to stand on the Word of God. Just mm-hmm. just stand on the Word of God, preach it, and stand on it. That needs to, The Word of God needs to be your defense. Because any, you know, the preferential thing, like you said, especially being, you're not going to win those things. You will not. So I made sure that my battles were over what God had called us to do. And what I realized is, is they they had no real argument, but with guys like you're talking about, and this is something that I've kind of been passionate about too, is, is people going into revitalization works. Be okay with being bivocational, be okay with it because that gives you leverage. And I'm just, I'm just going to be dead honest with you. That gives you leverage. Cause I know a good friend of mine right now went into a tough situation, was there full time. And they were like, we're going to cut your pay. And he couldn't, he was like, well, I can't support my family. Of course, he was out. So you've got to be willing to be bivocational. I mean, I had one of our former deacons that is no longer at our church um, said, we'll cut your pay. I said, okay, that's fine. You know, Mm -hmm. of course, I went home, told my wife, she goes, what did you just say? And I was like, God's got us, you know. But but on that note, and I want to hit on this to finish off with, uh, in the Driscoll situation, um, he ended up quitting, okay? Because the church, it was kind of clear uh, that there wasn't any true formal accountability within the church uh, when it came to leadership. Now, I want to I want to take this piece to leadership because you know we've all kind of spoke about people who were um, unbiblically fired from their church and churches. And, um, so let's talk about accountability within leadership. How can we hold ourselves as pastors? How can we hold other pastors uh, accountable within the framework of a church? Because like with Driscoll, there, there was no accountability for him. There wasn't hardly anybody who could truly speak into his life 
Um, you see Perry Noble, which I, I believe in Perry Noble's situation, there was actually a group who said, you're fired. They fired him. Um, they held him accountable, which a lot of people were like, New Spring, it's all Perry Noble. Well, clearly they had something because they fired him. Um, James McDonald, they fired him. Um, so let's talk about that. What are some things that we need to have in place as churches and even as leaders within a church um, to hold ourselves accountable? What would you guys say some of those things are? Okay, so let's hit on the plurality of elders. Let's let's hit on that. So let's just be clear. Marcel was a plurality of elders, right? Was that, that, that's going to be? I'm just going to. That's, what, that's but, but see, did, did Mark did Mark Driscoll have that uh, full authority unilateral power? Was it just like a show, or what? Did was there really a, a plurality and equality between they had the elders? Three on their executive elder board. Now they changed, and I, I'm just I just said that because right, I didn't, right. No, that's but good. there were three. Uh, in their quote unquote executive elders. Now they had other elders underneath them. I think right. that's what the podcast talked about. But I know Sutton Turner and I forgot the other guy's name was with Driscoll. Did they have any processes where the other two elders could have fired Driscoll? It appears not. Okay. See, that's a problem because then it's just in name only. There's right. really no uh, yeah. true authority behind that. Like at Pole Creek, we have uh, five elders. We have three on staff and two um, volunteer. And in our bylaws, um, essentially, uh, with a eighty uh, percent vote, we can eighty percent vote of the church of the elders of the elders. They can fire me. Okay, yeah. So if if the other four elders say Ben, you're out of line, it's time to get rid of you. They can they can fire me. Okay. The congregation can also fire me. How would um, that work? That would basically be, I'd have to look at our bylaws. I believe that's a 75% vote. You're not worried about it. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 if I am, then there's some other things wrong, right? So there's really, uh, and I joked with our church when we changed our bylaws because we were heavily deacon-led before. Now we're um, an elder-led church, congregationally ruled, elder-led is kind of how I like to put it. But um, there's actually more ways to fire me in the new bylaws than there were in the old bylaws. <laughs> so, you know, people were kind of concerned yeah! about that. But essentially, the, the elders have true authority. And, and then me, along with uh, three others, could fire any of the other ones as well, okay. you know. And, of course, we would go through a process, but it wouldn't even have to come to the congregation okay. if the elders are determined that there was a reason to get rid of one of us. Now, you know? Ben, you guys have, is that similar to what you guys have here? You've got three elders. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. So right now we have three. Um, and we actually just did a bylaws update to clarify some of that too. Mm -hmm. um, so the elders cannot fire each other. Um, the way that we're set up is, is a simple majority vote of the elders can temporarily suspend the authority of an elder pending a congregational vote. So only the congregation can hire and fire okay. elders. Um, it's a two-thirds majority, uh, has to uh, vote uh, an elder out, and uh, the only grounds for termination is a disqualifying sin. So, like, uh, people can't fire me because they, like, don't like something that I said in the pulpit unless it violates our statement of faith or if I've committed some kind of sin according to Titus or first Timothy that disqualifies me from being a pastor. You know, if I, if my wife were to divorce me because I was an abusive husband or I were to uh, end up on the news for some kind of crime or something like that, then clearly I would be disqualified. Um, but the way we had it before was, is we had to wait for a congregational vote. Our bylaws say the soonest we can call a special meeting is two weeks. So we thought, well, what happens if you have a guy that ends up on the news? Does he just retain all of his authority for two weeks? So we put a provision that 
suspends him. In other words, the other elders could come to me and say, you're not allowed to preach. You're not allowed to teach. You're not allowed to come to the Lord's table. You're not allowed like put restrictions on me, but they can't actually remove me as an elder. And then they would, uh, the, the way the process is now. So, uh, if the elders wanted to fire me, they would have to bring an accusation to the church and say, we believe Ben's disqualified himself as a pastor based on these grounds. And the church is going to have to vote on whether or not to remove him. Now, if it's a member, a member has to bring an accusation with two witnesses to the elders for the elders to review. So uh, let's say, you know, I was seen out somewhere with somebody other than my wife and a church member saw that they couldn't just come to the elders. They would have they would have to confirm that with other people and bring an accusation, basically Matthew 18 and say, I've personally confronted him or me and these witnesses have confronted him and we're bringing it now to the elders that we believe that he's in sin. Then the elders would bring the motion to the congregation and say, we've evaluated it also. And we're in agreement with these members that this man's disqualified himself. So that's basically how our, how our process works. But what Ben was getting at and the issue with Driscoll and a lot of mega church setups, even if they say they have elders is what's called parity. In other words, do they have the same level of authority? I'm not, the boss of any other pastors here, they're not my boss. Uh, the congregation is technically our boss. So, And some people would disagree with that. They would disagree with that. But I think I, they're wrong. I do too. I, th- I think scripturally, uh, well, the Baptist Faith and Message says there's two offices in the church, pastor and deacon, not executive pastor, regular pastor, or lay pastor, staff pastor, or whatever these other made-up names that we have are. Right. Um, there's only two offices. And so uh, we don't have archbishops. We don't have popes. We don't have any of that kind of stuff, which is essentially how Mark Driscoll functioned. He right. had an infallible office the same way that the pope does. So anytime you have a structure like that where you have an unfireable guy or or you have you don't have accountability in place, that's just a recipe for disaster. Right. Uh, even if the church is pretty healthy, um, any, any man that is... Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, we're still sinners, yes. you know, even if we're pastors. And so it's easy to point on a guy like Driscoll and say, well, that guy, he was he was off his rocker, you know. The reality is if we had the money that he did and the influence that he did and the lack of accountability, are we really, would we really be that much that better? That podcast would still be going on about me probably. So. You know, yeah, and so, so I mean, we got to keep that humility in mind. But I, I think... I think bib- biblically, it's very easy to prove scripturally that churches should be governed by a plurality of elders. I think it's very clear that those elders are equals, um, that there's not one ruling over all the others. Um, and I think that this this whole accountability thing, the elders aren't exempt from that. that they need to be uh, even removed from church membership the same way that a member would. So let's talk about us three. Granted, I have an associate, elder, pastor, whatever you want to call it. Um, so us three, you're the only pastor at staff, right? Am I understanding? Or have you had so I, I, I had a pastoral team of myself, music minister and a youth, youth leader. Okay. So um, you, okay. So they're on staff too. Okay. And so basically the way ours would work would be, um, if there was an issue within the staff, um, that would be resolved by the deacons and the personnel committee. Okay. And then if there was a, a disqualifying area there uh, for grounds of removal or discipline or whatever, again, that would come before the church. Okay. And then we go through Matthew 18, um, probationary period. And then there would be the, uh, in order to remove uh, an elder, it has to be a 75% vote by the congregation, which comes from that 
uh, comes from personnel and deacons. Okay. So that's how that would work. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So you don't technically, I mean, you've got leadership. You're kind of like me. Like we've got leaders, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify it as a plurality of elders. Maybe not in the technical sense, right. but there's yeah, a staff either. team. Yeah. And yeah. that well, that would be the yeah. elders of the church. Yeah. We have a leadership team yeah. that, um, that would, that, are leaders, but they're not technically pastors. So. Again, I think you have to look at this like the plurality of elders is a great thing to have, but if you're in a smaller church situation, and it's just you, right? It's, it's not just possible. Just, it's just him at his in, church in that regard. Me. I mean, and not in the sense of where you've got you know three or four ordained men of God who right. are actually carrying the title elder and meet all of those qualifications. So it's kind of a slide rule thing where you have to. I think you have to use it depending on what you have at hand in your in your church. Right. Um, so it's just yeah. you. Of course, you've only been there for a couple months now, but yeah, yeah, and um, you know, and, and and I think that you know, for some people, uh, there may be some people watching this. They're thinking, "What are you talking about, elders?" I mean, essentially, it's just an interchangeable word for pastors and and, and pastoral team exactly. that's on staff. I had but but there are people who who do not understand that word, and it, and it's almost scary <laughs> to some people because yeah, it sounds Presbyterian <laughs> or it sounds you know like you just authoritative you know sort of thing. You'll get a kick out of this yeah. real quick. Uh, so I had a guy come to our church that came from one of these guys' church. I'm not going to say who. And they're like, they're moving to elder led. I was like, what does elder mean? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> I said, that's all it means yeah. is pastor. They're like, no, it doesn't. And I said, do a Bible study. Let's do it. He goes, oh. <laughs> hey, we, we told him if he didn't like it, just go to I didn't name. I didn't name names. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I definitely know a lot of people that, that would not have a clue what that, that terminology means when it comes to the church because they've never dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, one of the things you have to be careful of as a pastor going into a church, too, is understanding that there are only two offices, as you said. There's there's pastor or elder, and there's deacons. That's it. That's the only two offices we have. The problem that I've seen over the years is that you have people who are serving as a deacon who are technically serving as an elder, mm-hmm. and that's a problem especially when they don't uh, meet the criteria for an elder. It's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. Um, And so, uh, and I get why that's happened many, many times because uh, pastors have come and gone, you know, there's no standard leadership for a period of time. And who's the ones that that stay? It's the deacons. And then everybody depends on them and, and, and all that kind of, so I get why it's there. But at the same time, it's unbiblical. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we need to lead our people first to understand what those offices are, um, how they're supposed to work within the church. Uh, I did like the way you said it. You know, you're kind of elder-led but congregational-ruled in in a sense. Correct. Um, the the elders lead in the spiritual sense. They they're leading the direction of the church. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to go before the the church when, when it comes to those things. Uh, but maybe you have a business meeting to deal with your budget, uh, yeah. and, and those kinds of things. And and of course, if you have to remove somebody or add somebody to membership or pastoral staff, whatever it happens to be. That's correct. Um, and so we step into these roles a lot of times 
where you've got deacons who have uh, held that authority, if you will, and it becomes an issue sometimes where you're, it's kind of like tug of war. Um, mm-hmm. They've got the authority. You feel like God's leading you as an elder, as a pastor in a particular direction. But now you've got people who really aren't technically qualified to be mm-hmm. elders making elder decisions. That's right. So we need to be careful with that and and really teach our people what this really means. Yes. And, and I agree that a plurality of elders needs to be equals. Right. They need to have an equal say. Right. Um, and, and if they're not making decisions together, uh, then then there's something wrong. We need to deal with the elders, and you know, in that's that case, yeah. that that's definitely a problem. I just add yeah. one thing to that. If if you step into a situation like what you just described, where it's been deacon led for years and years and years, yeah. and they don't understand the role of the deacon and the role of the pastor, and you're stepping in and you want to create that culture change and bring them to a biblical understanding of those roles, that takes time. Oh, absolutely. It is not going to be an instant solve. That's exactly the situation I stepped into when I came into Liberty. And I'm not saying we're perfect, but I am saying we're a lot healthier than we were in the beginning. But the reason why is because um, I I was able to stay Mm -hmm. long enough to see that through. And we see the average lifespan of the pastor being, you know, three to four years. They don't stay long enough to grind out that hard fight and win and see that that victory happen in the life of the church. So if you step into a situation like that and it, you don't see it happening in year one, year two, year three, you got to keep grinding away at it yep. because they, the deacons have to see that, oh, this guy's not going to cut and run like the last 15 pastors we have. He actually That's cares right. about us. Yes, he loves us. He actually knows what he's talking about. They have to buy into your mm-hmm. leadership vision and trust you. And then once you have the trust, then you can start to implement those changes unless unless you're like Adam, you just go in and clean house though. Well there you go. But, yeah. <laughs> but on but on but on this note, and this is something that this yeah, yeah. Th- this is something that from a leadership perspective that a lot of guys, especially guys that I'm seeing now, um, that go into revitalization, you may have the authority, but you don't have the influence. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference there. There's mm-hmm. a massive difference. Mm-hmm. A huge difference, especially like if you go into a deacon-led church. Those deacons have the influence of the church. You do not. They don't care what the bylaws say. They do not no. care. I mean, you they can read it out chapter along. and verse, Sometimes. and they couldn't care less. Yeah. Well, all they care about is what that influential person says. It and if he says this is the way we should go, that's the way we're going to go. And it doesn't matter you know? what yeah. your authority is. It doesn't that's matter right. how many doctorates. You know, it does not matter. Yeah, it does not matter. And that's why the relational thing mm-hmm. is so critical to pastoring because like you just said the people need to know you love and care about them but right. if you go in there guns blazing and you're blasting everybody and no matter if it's correct or not you're not gaining any influence whatsoever That's right. and you will not ever have the influence nor yeah. the authority in that church right. i mean you know from a from a practical standpoint so like derek said Going into these difficult churches, man, dig your heels in, stand on the word of God, and and be flexible. That's and, right. And don't the first move is not to change the music. Yeah, don't be stupid. <laughs> don't be stupid. Yeah. I think or, Dennis. If, and I'm if, to, if you want to be stupid, just keep your resume fresh. You know. <laughs> well, I think Dan, Dennis said in order yep. to what does Dennis say? He stole. Takes a long something. time to turn a big ship around. Well, the change he says a lot. He does say, say it's a lot. easier to rein in a wild horse than resurrect a dead one. No, it's something about in order to you got to have change to 
to make change. Like, and he talks oh, you gotta have change oh, in yeah, your pocket. Yeah, because yeah. you're gonna have to spend some change. to make the change. Yeah, yeah. And when you run John out of change, Maxwell-ism. it is. Okay, so yeah. he stole it from John Maxwell. So, but to to wrap this up, I want to I want to ask this question from <laughs> all right. of us here, and we've talked about the congregation. In our church, our congregation votes on five things. Uh, they vote on pastor. They vote on deacons. They vote on the bylaws, which in, includes church discipline. Uh, they vote on um, budget. And they vote on merge, dissolvement, that type of thing. Those are the five things our church votes on. Um, I think those things are all above reproach. I think it. I, I've talked to some guys that have a plurality of elders, but what you was talking about, it's all it's concentrated power. So it's like, well, who who creates your salary? Well, the other elders vote on it. That's not above reproach. I'm sorry, but it's not because it's like that's that's the one that or the few times we use a committee yeah, at Pole Creek. That's is, like an oligarchy. It is. Yeah. Like Nam. Shots fired. Ben Kerfman said Nam. Ben Kerfman said Nam. Uh, <laughs> but um but those are the five things our congregation votes on. And you know, I I have the authority, anything dealing with the spiritual things, you know, where it comes classes or anything like that, I can just well, but when it comes to big major changes within the church, I would be unwise not to bring people. Yeah, and anytime you're dealing with money, especially, mm. that's when you really want I'll you want to go over off. and above with accountability <laughs> because that's when controversy just swirls around money yes. always. So that's why I'd, I would prefer, you know, there are some churches where their elders do determine salaries and raises and budget and all that other stuff. I just wouldn't want that kind of a, a burden no. because, I mean, one wrong move. That's not you above know? reproach, I don't believe. Well, exactly. somebody's going to question that no matter what. They you're always going to have raised, somebody. Right? Do what now? Yeah. You're always going to re- vote yourself <laughs> well, look, right. Exactly. When, exactly. when exactly. Congress, Congress goes in and votes themselves a raise, everybody goes, wait a minute, you're making X amount of money and you just voted right. your raise. That's right. But you didn't give Social Security you know, a raise or you didn't give the, the vet right. the raise or whatever it is. That's right. It's, it's just unwise. Yeah, it is it very really unwise. Is. I agree. Does yes, anybody sir. have any parting words before I wrap this up? Has anybody got anything they want to throw in to add anything? Then said plurality of elders. <laughs> so far, it's working well for us, but it took a whole lot of educating our church because we were, like you said, Ray, Southern Baptists don't understand plurality of elders because it's just new to us. It's not new to the Bible, but it's new to Southern Baptists. I think it's the terminology is new. Yeah. Most sure. churches, and I don't, let's don't get nuanced here, yeah. but a lot of churches, if you said, well, we've got a pastor and we've got associate pastors. Well, I know, I understand the plurality. I get that. But what I'm saying is they've been operating in that method Correct. for so long. But when we throw in the word elder, uh-huh. then it becomes this whole other, oh well, my it, gosh. But in some ways it's probably Sometimes it's better to not even use the word elder and just keep saying pastor. Hundred percent. Yeah, don't even bring in the new terminology. No, because because that's one of, that was one of our biggest struggles was <laughs> continuing to reiterate elder and pastor is the exact same thing. Right. They're they're equal. That is synonymous terms. Yeah. You know, but some people still struggled with that. Yeah. I was you know? talking with somebody with John three sixteen. Don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Amen. <laughs> Doesn't matter how good a preacher that's you right. are, they're still gonna. Amen. I was talking with somebody recently, and 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 the the topic of elders came up. And immediately they, they went reformed. They're like, oh, yeah. oh, that's just in reformed churches. Yeah. I'm like, no, it's not just in reformed well, churches. Well, it is. I said, By but, it I, is said, but <laughs> I give them credit uh, because the early churches, you know, we need to, if we go back a lot of years, right. that's the way they, they were. I mean, that's, that's also, kind of the foundation. 
also Southern Baptist churches. Yes. It, it just it just ask and be like, when's the last time, like, how old is your church? If your church is 100 years or older, go look at your minutes. It was started, it'll say, these men were appointed as elders over the church. Every Southern Baptist church. <laughs> the, all the original Southern Baptist churches were also 1689. So people were like, last yeah. Reformed churches. I'm like... <laughs> Your church was either reformed or probably planted by a reformed church if it's a long-standing established church. Then you got to define reform. Long time. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. Yeah. Calvinistic, well, professional, <laughs> covenantal. I, I give credit where it's due because— And Baptist, because yeah. I alliterated it. Amen. I give credit where it's due because reformed churches have been a driving force behind that making its comeback, which I, th- I think it should have never left, but it making its comeback absolutely— but now you, you you also got to be careful that some of your people don't think that hey just because it's a plurality of elders that it means you're you're a, a cal you know a dreaded Calvinist or whatever it is right. you know you got to be well I I think there's that. two principles behind yeah. that we could do a whole episode on that but in the reform movement like the whole reason that began in the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura right you go back to the Bible. How does the Bible say that we're supposed to do things? Right. The second principle is semper reformanda, that you're always reforming, which is the reason why as a Baptist I'm more reformed than a Presbyterian because I didn't stop where the Presbyterian stopped. I kept on going, and I'm continuing to go. So then the, the principle, the way that it's supposed to be is that you're always reforming yourself. You're always looking at everything that you're doing, that you're teaching, that you're believing, and remolding that based on what? Going back to Scripture and saying, how can I be more biblical in doing this? And I think the spirit of that is where a lot of these changes in ecclesiology have come from. And like you said, that's not a Calvinistic thing. That's just saying, if basically, if elders were good enough for Paul, they ought to be good enough for us. I mean, that's basically the, the yeah, argument that we're making right. there. Don't be deformed to be reformed. Right? Ooh. Hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Do we have, does anybody have the Facebook thing up? Is there any comments that are worth reading? I don't know. Our I, one I fan? I can look. I couldn't see. I couldn't pull it up. I was going to look. It wouldn't come up. It's 420. What was his name? Who was it that was talking about we need to do a marijuana episode? Oh, that was Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Aaron Which we did. Shout out Aaron Dyson. Looks like Let's Go Brandon's on there, but. <laughs> let's see. Yeah, that was, that was even, last week's, though, right? We're not even on here. That was last week's that y'all were discussing. Well, I'll go ahead and wrap this up. Hopefully, it's on there. Is it on there? I recorded it either way. <laughs> there you go. Oh, there we are. We are on. So, yep. okay. Oh, wow. Where am I at? So there's just no comment. It doesn't matter. But, yeah, there we go. My mom's watching. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, mom. Your mom love, my wife. Love you, Mom. <laughs> but uh, no, in, in short, to wrap this thing up, number one is, um, you know, look to have the difficult conversations. Eliminate gossip confront issues um, because that relational aspect, you want to have the relationship and the body working at full function. And the only way that's possible is, as Ben was talking about, is you got to cut out the, the bad parts. You got to cut out the diseases. And so to confront these things, so avoid gossip, avoid it. If you've got an issue with somebody within your church, go to them. Do not talk to other people about it. Go to that person right off the bat and have that conversation. And, um, and then take those steps if necessary. But, you know, a lot of times people look at church discipline as a bad thing, but it's really not. It's truly glorifying to God, and, and it's protecting his body, honestly. And so let's do that. Uh, 
and if you've got any comments or questions, throw it in the uh, comment section. But I um, hope you guys have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next week as we talk about Christmas. Peace out. You can continue the conversation online by visiting us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the number four horsemen. Don't forget to tell your friends and enemies about the podcast and be sure to subscribe and review. 